What's your favorite color? Why does summer make you sad? Do you crave the snow? Where did you get your favorite pair of shoes? Oh, I wanna know. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Thinking Pilates podcast. Uh, I think this is episode 28. I'm joined today uh, for the second time by James Crater, who I now consider a friend. He's also a colleague uh, in Northern California. He has a studio called uh, Evolved Body. Hi, James. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Chantal, for having me. You're welcome. Again. Yeah, again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's but we have had, uh, as James was saying before we started recording, we have, we have already recorded uh, a really, really awesome podcast that everybody uh, missed out on because it then disappeared from the computer, which is super, super awesome. So we're giving it another try. And what's very cool about this second go round is that James and I have had uh, more opportunity to just be in the same space together and to teach together. Um, I've had more of an opportunity to watch him teach um, and and interact with a wide variety of other teachers, so I think it's gonna it's gonna be pretty juicy. Um, so James, uh, uh, let's see, James and I met briefly a few years ago um, at a Philip Beach workshop um, in the Bay Area and. Um, as most of you, uh, any of you who know James, um, will agree that it was kind of like love at first sight, not really sight, but at first, um, word James is very, very, uh, easy to, uh, adore. And I think, um, it was in that first moment that I just really realized that he was a special kind of teacher and bringing something to the table that was pretty unique. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, about his teaching style and, and what kind of makes him who he is. And one of the other really cool things after James and I got an opportunity to connect a few years later after I moved um, into the Sacramento area uh, was that... Um, I found out that James, along with a lot of other uh, talented teachers and trainers, were working with spinal cord injuries. So a few months ago, uh, James graciously allowed me to sit in on a session um, with one of his students, and I'm going to let James tell you a little bit about that. Um, and it was really in in the watching of him teaching that it occurred to me that um, Oh, I really identified, I think, a quality about his teaching that I have rarely seen uh, in teachers, which I think uh, I called, it's like this fearlessness, uh, like fearless attention or fearless compassion, um, uh, a way of showing up for his work and for his student um, that really is pretty rare. So, um, James, before we dive into any specific questions, I wonder if you'll just share with us a little bit about, um, uh, your, your teaching path and, and what, you know, what you're all about right now, <clears throat> what your, you know, kind of what your teaching style is and, and what your background is. Give us a little bit of context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got started in the, I guess you could say the wellness industry via the massage route. Uh, probably when I was around 20-ish, I went to massage therapy school while I was finishing up college. 
um, got my degree in interpersonal communication and linguistics. Uh, and I was bartending, or right before I started bartending, I was serving tables. And I think it was right when I started bartending, so I was probably about 21. And I realized I just didn't want to, I didn't want to do that anymore. So went to massage therapy school, went all through massage therapy school and realized really quickly that it was going to be very difficult for a guy to make a living doing regular massage. Not that it, not that it doesn't happen, but you know, most people going for massage want a, a female massage therapist. Mm-hmm. So I kind of put that on the back burner, finished off school, um, uh, probably about a year after I graduated college, I, my aunt had opened up a feed store up in kind of Oroville, Bangor area, Northern California. And I just had this, I had this, like, uh, I guess you could say intuition that I was supposed to do, I was supposed to work with her. I was supposed to do something. So I mentioned it to my mom and she's like, oh, you don't want to drive all the way up there to work at a feed store. You have a college degree. And I said, no, I'm not going to go work at a feed store. Just, you know, talk to Aunt Karen and see there's something I'm supposed to be doing. So my mom mentioned it to her and she said, well, it's funny. I was actually going to ask if you'd be interested in doing equine massage therapy. So massage therapy on horses. And when my mom told me that, I thought, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And then I sat on it for about a week and I was like, you know, maybe. So next thing you know, I'm in equine massage therapy school. And (laughs) Uh while I was there, it was like all walks of life. I mean, you had like massage therapists, you had um, ranch hands, you had, you know, people who were working with racehorses, just all this variance in, in humans. And sitting around the campfire at night, we would all just kind of talk. And as we were talking, I realized things that I found every day, you know, things that were sort of pedestrian to me, sort of. Oh, you get a cold, you do this. So you need energy, you do this. Oh, if you know. everything I was saying was so novel to everyone that I realized, wow, this is I'm I'm either really weird or I can make a job out of just doing out, out of just being me. <laughs> so sort of, yeah, it, it was true. It was like an epiphany moment of like, oh, okay, I can just I can just be me and get paid for this. <laughs> so so I came back, worked with horses. Um, started going to, went to, uh, studied yoga, started teaching yoga. Um, eventually went to, this is fast forwarding quickly, but eventually went through Thai massage school. Um, was really into Thai massage and yoga for, for a number of years. And uh, a friend of mine went to, um, a Pilates class at the gym, just regular old Pilates class. And he's like, oh, you've got to come. There's all of these athletes in, in, in the area that I live in, in Northern California, so in, in Folsom, we produce a significant number of collegiate and then professional athletes. So our gyms, like regular gyms, are a little different. Like at any given moment, you're working out next to either who will, you know, be a professional athlete or someone who is. So there's people doing really unique, even at our regular old gyms, there's people doing really unique workouts like people were doing crossfitty and primally sort of movement years before anyone else you know caught wind of it mm-hmm. so everyone all these dudes were going to a pilates class mm-hmm. and he's like oh you've got to come you got to come so i went and the minute i went into this was just a regular gym pilates class and the minute i went i was like oh this is i, I like this i don't know exactly what this is but i like this so make friends with the instructor Long story short, she said, oh, you should come and do um, this Pilates training.
Well, I had just gotten back from myofascial release training and spent a ton of money studying myofascial release, which is the massage modality that I do now. And a couple people offered to pay my way through this weekend course for Pilates stuff so that I could come and train their athletes. Hmm. So I went through this while I was getting, while I was going through the Pilates training, uh, the gym that I had, the gym that was sponsoring this scouted me. Next thing you know, I'm teaching six Pilates classes a week <laughs> and having zero idea. I mean, this was, you know, for, for better or for worse, whatever you think of it, this was a bender method training. Mm-hmm. And this was like a two day course bender method training. And I'm now teaching six Pilates classes a week, <laughs> having no idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So, so I realized I like it and I thought, okay, what I want to do is I want to teach Pilates and do myofascial release. That's what I'm going to do. So I ended up enrolling in a balanced bodies course uh, after the very first weekend of like mat one, I came back to all my classes and by that time I think I was teaching like 10 classes a week. And I literally told all of them, I said, I don't know what I've been teaching you guys, but it's not Pilates. So forget everything I said. And let's start over again. And that sort of was the course, you know, yeah. within that time, then I started working at uh, dance studios and gyms. I led or I was sort of in charge of an active wellness department at a chiropractic clinic. I opened up another instructor studio for them. I was driving 450 miles a week from studios to gyms to wellness centers, kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that was about eight years ago. And seven years ago, I decided to, like, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to open up my own space. Mm. So that's when I opened up Evolved Body. It will be seven years this May. It's about six and a half years right now. And that's sort of, that's that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I love that, uh, the realization moment. Uh, I think... I think most of us have had that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Where we go. It was just, it, uh, yeah, it was literally, it was literally just, like I said, that weird epiphany moment and then a series of open doors that I just said yes to. Yeah, 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 obviously, right? You just kept saying yes. That's, that's really mm-hmm. clear. So, so exciting and so cool. Um, and now you find yourself, uh, you know, really as a teacher and you can correct me as, uh, if I'm wrong, that's that a lot of other teachers are turning to, right? You're a, you are a teacher of teachers. You're offering continuing education. You're, you know, you've, you've had a tremendous amount of and varied experience, um, yeah, you know, more and more. So, yeah, yeah I had always, like, even as I started, I thought, oh, eventually what I would like, to, you know, I'd like to get a little more of, so there are, I heard, uh, watching The Voice a number of seasons ago, <laughs> I heard Adam Levine say a quote that sort of chimed with me. He said something along the lines, he was speaking to one of the contestants on The Voice, and he said, you remind me of me. He goes, there are... Um, vocalists who play instruments, and then there are musicians who happen to sing. Mm. And Adam Levine said, I'm a musician who happens to sing, and this guy reminded him of him. Mm-hmm. And the quote stuck with me because I thought, oh my God, that's me. There are uh, movement instructors who also happen to do massage, mm-hmm. and then there are body workers who also teach movement. Mm-hmm. And I am definitely a body worker who happens to teach movement. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the major voices within the movement field are movement instructors who maybe also do massage. Uh But uh I don't, 
off the top of my head, I can't think of, or there are very few people who really are um, somatically inclined as a body worker who also teach movement. And it's a different voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's um, that's clear in the way that you teach. Um, and, of course, I've only seen you teach uh, Lane, who is um, the young man with the spinal cord injury who you've been working with for, uh, I guess, about a year now. Um, yep. but, but also just watching you work with the teachers recently, um, y- your perspective is very unique. Um, so let's just dive into this a little bit. So when I watched you teach the first time, so when I first met you, you know, we were at a Philip beach workshop, which is, yeah. you know, right up your alley, you know, in, in terms of, <laughs> totally. It, yeah, taking, totally, totally. right. So <laughs> taking it, taking and applying movement, uh, from really a holistic systemic kind of perspective. And of course, Philip's speech is not just limited to, you know, fascial, uh, health and, and, um, you know, rehabilitation, but really looking at the interaction of all of this, the different tissue systems. Um, so that's really interesting that that was our first meeting, but you know, our interaction and some brief conversations in that weekend, um, it, it was even obvious to me then that there was uh, just a slightly, you had a slightly different take on things. Um, and then watching you work with Lane, you know, beyond just, um, there were two things. I mean, obviously you have a tremendous amount of skill um, as a teacher, there's, and which is, which is something I want to talk about, you know, you're, ability to relate and hold the space and the way that you interact with him and, and guide him and move him, uh, both motivationally and also physically, um, is something. And then, but your approach to moving, uh, educating and getting a body to become reinformed, um, is also something really unique. So when we watched you teach Lane the second time during the mentoring workshop, you know, you presented first, uh, we talked uh-huh. a, a bit in, you know, about your approach to spinal cord injuries. And, um, so let's just start here. This is not necessarily, um, you know, the beginning place, but it, I think it's an interesting piece to start with, which is when you're working with somebody with a spinal cord injury, um, and, and Lane is a partial quadriplegic. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when we teach we're we're if we're doing a good job, we're checking in with our student about what their own physical experience is. you know, what their level of proprioception is or interoception is at various, you know, moments, um, you know, as we're working with them and getting them to explore and, and, you know, change habits, et cetera. But when you're working with Lane, it just doesn't work that way because he doesn't have the experience of feeling his body uh, at all or in the same way that somebody else does. So can you can you talk a little bit about your approach to um, just the, the just the dialogue that you enter into with him Um which is so different, right? There's just a whole different approach. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you you kind of touched on it that with, uh, with your average client, there are certain, um, feels, there are certain calls and responses within the body 
that are able to be physically, tangibly perceived, even if you have to kind of uncover that a bit. Mm-hmm. We all we all have parts of our body that we're disembodied from, or certain clients you have maybe very disembodied from the whole body. Mm-hmm. But there's potential there that, you know, you, you touch a leg and there is potential for that client to feel the leg. Right. Both from a proprioceptive and interoceptive perspective, and you just don't you just don't have that. So you know, it makes me you don't have that with spinal cord injuries in the same fashion that you would with your regular client. So the way that I tend to, what I have found increasingly important is sort of um, the art of dialoguing mm-hmm. and the art of storytelling within within cueing. So rather than uh, you know, giving the, giving the, you know, squeeze here, push here, do you feel that sort of thing, um, to create scenarios that maybe either draw upon muscle memory that is still there or that draws upon an experience that they can sort of relate to. Mm-hmm. So instead of, um, you know, instead of uh, lie there and allow the ribs to soften into the table or feel your sits bones, you know, widening and sinking into the table, uh, maybe the cue might become, okay, imagine you're lying on a warm sandy beach and imagine that the sand behind you is cool. How would you feel that? Or, um, you know, it, it, it could be anything. I think I gave the example uh, at the workshop I was working with another client with spinal cord injuries, and this was sort of when I really became attached to this um, way of dialoguing with my clients. I was working with a with a client who uh, was a is a quadriplegic, and was doing some reformer footwork with her. And I had heard from another instructor that that works with her that oh she had some gluteal engagement, there was some hamstring stuff, and I just I wasn't getting that out of out of the session. So I told this client, you know, I started talking with her and I said, so, you know, pre-accident, what, what was your life like? Did you do any yoga? Did you do any Pilates? Did you dance? What did you do? And she said, well, I didn't really do any of that. I played sports. Like, Great. What sport did you play? She was, well, I was really into basketball. Awesome. What position? I was a center. So no, drawing upon my knowledge of basketball, I was like, okay, what would be important? So if she's going down into a squat position on the reformer, you know, like your basic mm-hmm. in position on mm-hmm. the on the reformer, what would that be for her? And I thought, okay, imagine you're at your basketball game and you're going up for a jump ball and you're up against the team that you hate the most with the girl <laughs> on the team that you hate the most. And you know you need to jump higher than her to get that ball. Close your eyes. Put yourself there, and when I say go, I want you to jump for the ball. As soon as we switched the cue from, okay, push out or sit here or sink here or this, that, or the other, to simply put yourself in this position and do it, sure enough, she pushed herself away from me mm-hmm. on her own volition. Granted, it wasn't super, you know, it wasn't anything that anyone would videotape and say, this is how you do footwork. Right. But for her, it was damn near a miracle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at that moment, I was like, oh, okay, we got we to gotta switch some cueing here. Yeah. So to switch cueing like that, where it becomes more, in my opinion, just um, more experiential, more experimental uh-huh. for them, and just 
coming from a deeper level of, I guess you could maybe say biointelligence, yes. where the body just sort of is placed uh, metaphorically in a position and therefore knows what to do. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that is sort of how I tend to cue, um, that's how I tend to cue in general, but specifically with anyone working with spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries, uh, MS, Parkinson's, anything like that, where maybe they, maybe they, they truly are, or maybe they just perceive themselves to be inept yes. at mm-hmm. one or several movements. Right. It sort of takes them out of, well, I can't use that, so how am I going to do this? Right more of a, okay, well, that's that's the required action, and let's just do that. And then we can sort of go in and refine it how, how we need to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, two things um, are coming to mind. One is, um, you know, this idea of not isolating uh, the body, not isolating an experience in the body in terms of like, Let's just get this one muscle to work, even if that happens yeah. to be our objective. You know, when we over isolate or we we go too internal, mm-hmm. people uh, you yeah, know s- struggle, right? So, so the mm-hmm. value of of the like you're saying the experiential uh, m- analogy, uh, drawing on particularly drawing on somebody's past positive movement experience. Yeah, and um, so the external cueing. Um, it's like, it's like a combination of external, uh, cueing and experiential motivation. And then the other piece is just that, that, and we talked about this in our, um, you know, in our first conversation, which is the positive emotional connection to a movement experience. Now we talked about it before, uh, in terms of for anything to stick, to really take hold and begin to be integrated into the tissue you know, that there, there really needs to be a positive emotional, um, experience that kind of holds, holds that, uh, you know, that new habit, but we're also, we're also now talking about drawing on past positive emotional, um, you know, experiences with the body. Um, and I think, you know, not only for people who have, you know, real limitations, you know, and and are working with illness and disease, like, you know, whether you have a spinal cord injury or you do have Parkinson's or whatever, you know, that's happening. There is, I think, mentally, uh, we begin to believe something about ourselves because we're anticipating something or, um, you know, whatever it is, we have an identity, right? That's, that's not serving us potentially. So we don't even believe that we can do something, So, but also for your regular folks, right. Who have, you know, we have all got body image, uh, distortion in some way. You know, we've, we have these ideas about what we look like and what we're capable of and, um, whether we're conditioned or deconditioned, you know, it's like, so I just feeling like this particular piece is really critical for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I have a conversation with um, with clients. Uh, a, you're not allowed in my studio to say I can't. Mm-hmm. You can say I don't know how. Um, and I have a. I, I often have conversations with my clients when things become um, too stressed in the body. Mm-hmm. When things become too negative in the body, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'll ask clients, you know, like, well, how did how did that how did that feel for you? Or what did you notice 
about that. And if, if all it is is negatives, then I have a conversation with the client. I said, you know, the body is a funny, funny thing. And if you are doing this beneficial work, you know, if you're doing your breathing, if you're doing your stretching, if you're doing your exercise, your healthy eating, your meditation, your whatever it is, but the thoughts that accompany that are, I don't like this, mm-hmm. or this is too hard, or I'm not good at this. Right. The brain, acting as just an Excel spreadsheet, that's basically what it is, it takes all the information that the body is accumulating, organizes it, processes it, and stores it for us. It then accompanies all of that beneficial work you're doing and drops it right into the, I don't like this, this isn't good for me, Dropbox. So none of that stuff sticks. And so you're spending all of this time working, doing, eating these beneficial things, but you're hating doing it because of something that's going on in the brain or a perception you have over the experience, and you've just wasted your time. Right, right. You've just absolutely wasted your time doing your Pilates. You might as well just sit there right? because none of it is going to stick. So drawing upon those positive experiences, even if it um, is frustrating for your body, it's okay to be frustrated. Mm-hmm. You can say, wow, I thought that was going to go so much better. But that is very different than, wow, I really suck at this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to, to have struggles. It's okay to not be good at something. But in my studio, it's not okay to beat yourself up about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's you know, we gotta we gotta find a way to process that. We've gotta find a way to sort of become okay with that. Just because I'm all about um, upregulating the systems in the body. Like every everything we do has to be beneficial, or more of the things we do have to be beneficial for the body than not. Doesn't mean we don't work hard. Right, right. Just means that the, the energy of the studio is is a little different. Yeah. Well, I think too, it's, uh, you're talking about, I mean, and you said it, but you're talking about perception, you know, perception is the overarching, um, it's like what rules the day, right? Whether, whether as a teacher, um, and this is something that I talk about a lot in terms of, uh, you know, um, promoting internal motivation or, you know, intrinsic motivational drive from the student. It's like you you can, as the teacher, see that the student is making progress and, and, you know, having success. But if the student does not perceive it that way, then it's, it's just, it doesn't matter. Right. So it really is part of what we do is to help craft the perception so that the student sees, you know, sees the experience as positive or sees it as a step in the right direction, even if it's not, you know, what they wanted or what they were expecting, you know, and our perception of our progress and our success, um, you know, not only, not only feeds our motivation, but it also, it also plays into this idea of discrepancy of being able to identify for ourselves. So me being the student where I was and where I am Uh and where I could go. Right. So the discrepancy is motivation increases as the discrepancy increases. Right. So the, the bigger the distance we can see that we can go or we have gone, then it's like exponentially 
it develops the internal drive, right? That comes from us as the student that does it, you know, has to be driven less and less by the, by the third party, right? By the teacher, or by the trainer, whoever that might be. Yeah, which is um, often really difficult. Um, for it's, I have found that scenario often very difficult in the Pilates environment mm-hmm. because the, a lot of the clients that come to my studio come in with, um, you know, they're, they're in the reconditioning mode. Mm-hmm. Let's say there was a, a hip injury or a back this or a scoliotic that, um, you know, they're coming in because they feel like crap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're first getting them back in their body and having them work through their body before we're ever really uh, classically strengthening sure. the body. Yeah. And I think just due to our, you know, uh, culturally, if there's no gains, then, you know, it didn't count for anything. Right. I mean, like I've had some very <laughs> deconditioned people come in that really just want to push through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's often difficult for them to calibrate where they're at in their success because, you know, they haven't bulked this or they haven't dropped the weight there mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, I'll often turn to them and say, yeah, but when was the last time you had, when was the last time you came in here and complained about that hip issue? Mm-hmm. And they'll pause and they'll go, oh, oh yeah, it's been a while. I mean, every once in a while it still hurts, but it's been a while. Uh You know, that's progress, yeah? Uh Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, it's knowing where you're at. And then after a while, you know, if you're still just doing, quote, unquote, rehabilitation work with a client who's been with you forever and ever and is going through that, you're wasting their time now. Right. Now you've got to be, you know, uh, now, now where do we take this healthier version of you and progress that? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing as a trainer where where your client is. And, and, and again, it comes down to dialoguing and conversing. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you at? What Where do I see you're at? Where do you see that you're at? How do we work better from here? And then that needs to be a constant conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe not explicit, but there needs to be an understanding of where do you want to go now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And right, a constant, constant conversation. Uh, totally. You know, driven from our point of view as the as the the guide, as the teacher, right, the educator, mm-hmm. um, because it's easy to lose track. I mean, for us, it's easy to lose track. I think, and then for the student, um, not all students, but but many of them, you know, easy to lose track of why they started or where they're going, and um, yeah, it's when you and have- ironically, ironically, it's easiest to lose track of your favorite clients. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's that client, it's that client yeah. that you, that you, that loves to eat as much as you do and you talk about this or you that or whatever, that when they come in, you know, it's really easy to just go into robot mode. Yeah. Like, well, we always do this. Yeah. So we'll do this so we can converse. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I found, I'm like, well, isn't that ironic? The clients that I have difficulty, you know, um, bonding with often get like the best sessions because then it's just all about the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's an interesting piece. I recently, uh, so one of the things I talk about and write a lot about and teach about is teaching as relationship. And, um, 
I think this will segue nicely into one of the aspects of, you know, what you do as a teacher, something unique to you, I think. But um, I posted recently on my um, Skillful Teaching uh, Facebook page the question about, uh, you know, people's feelings on boundaries around student-teacher relationships and, and, you know, do they have clarity about the way they want to formulate those relationships? You know, what's their take on it? Uh, what have what do they find challenging about that? You know, what have what kind of obstacles have they come up against before? And holy smokes, like what a a lot. I mean, people want to share their opinions, which is you know, of course, what I what I wanted, which is awesome. It was totally fantastic. So a lot of great, a lot of response, um, a lot of really thoughtful responses. But ultimately, it it, it has come down. The discourse has come down to. Um, are, are, do you follow the no friends rule or the friends, you know, or, or do you become friends with your clients? And, uh, I am not surprised that most people fall pretty, um, clearly on one side of that line or another. Um, but we, we just had some really interesting dialogue, um, around, I think what it comes down to is one, you have to be clear about, you know, what your, what your stance is. It's not a, it's not a, it depends kind of situation. In in my opinion, it's you show up the way you show up and the clearer you are, the easier that becomes, right? The easier it becomes to navigate those, um, you know, those questions. Mm, But I think my point is that if you, well, like for me, uh, the, my priority is, is connecting with my students. My priority uh-huh. is about the relationship because I don't feel like I can be my best unless I have a, a trusting reciprocal relationship. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the work, and then the work comes next, right? Then that, because yeah. it just can't come before the relationship. And, and I also know that in that, you know, sweet, intimate, uh, you know, relationship that I have with my students that there can be challenges like the one you're talking about, you know, where we get very comfortable or it gets, becomes more difficult to keep people on track. And, um, for me, that's a really worthwhile trade-off, but it's also because over time I've become aware of that and, you know, and I can, for the most part, I can, um, you know, correct course when things are getting a little too lackadaisical, you know. Um, but I just wonder what your feeling about that is in general. Well, I think, had we been having this conversation a couple of years ago, I would have said I fall more, I fall more on the line of, of not, not getting into relationships with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the more I, the more I have observed my own uh, rituals around the clients, mm-hmm. uh, I function best. I'm pretty. I, I only have a handful of clients that I will. Um, I don't even want to say socialize with outside of the studio. Mm-hmm. I only have a couple who um, I will uh, commune with outside of the studio. And those are clients who have been with me for a very long time, and we've usually experienced some extraneous life traumas 
mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my dad passed away a couple of years ago, and so clients that were with me, like on the day mm-hmm. that my dad had passed, mm-hmm. you know, that becomes a different relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, so clients like that where it's outside, but what? But what I have discovered about myself is I truly function better with my clients if there is even one little thread of commonality between myself and the client. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so I'll often, when I get a new client, actively now search for how do I relate to you? Yeah. You know, is it going to be the food relationship? Is it going to be the art relationship? Is it going to be the music relation? You know, like how are we going to, what is going to be that one special key that we go like, oh yes, I get you. I understand you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then after I find that, then I function better with clients. Because I have a, I have a few clients who frankly, I just didn't care for when they first came in. Sure. You know, uh, either our person, either the way we Mm -hmm. approach the work was so different or just the way we approach uh, conversation is so different that there was just something grating there. Mm-hmm. But after I found um, that commonality between us, so, some of those clients are now actually my favorite, favorite, favorite clients I've ever had. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because once we sort of unlock that, oh yeah, I get you moment, mm-hmm. then you start realizing like, oh my God, we are actually exactly the same. And that's probably why you irritated me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you, you had me looking in a mirror and I was seeing some of those qualities about me that I'd rather not see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, now I would say definitely that I need a relationship. It may be, you know, like I'm definitely not a, let's go grab lunch client yeah, type right. of instructor, right. mm-hmm. but, uh, within the studio, like I really know your story. Yeah. And I don't hide my story. Mm-hmm. My story is a, a wide open book at the studio. You know everything about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, the you know the friends no friends kind of line uh, does not you know does not necessitate you know having lunch with your clients, right? Like when you're building yeah. those kinds of. Yeah sweet and more intimate relationships with your clients, it does not mean that you also have to, you know, accept their invitation for coffee. Um, but I do think it's a fairly different approach. Um, and especially what you said about, you know, being an open book, like for yourself, like being willing to be vulnerable and transparent in front of your clients. Um, there's something about that, that, uh, I think is really critical for building, you know, sustaining that trust, that level of trust, that level of willingness and openness, um, with a client. Because as you said, you know, you search for the common thread, it's like, I get you, but I think too, it's also, you know, my experience with the difficult client or the client that makes me, you know, really want to run in the other direction. I've had this happen so many times, you know, somebody come in and you, you do, you bristle, you know, uh, you know, there's something about them. They're very, they're resistant. They're combative potentially, you know, there's like, there uh-huh. may be all of these qualities and you just think, well, one, why are you here? Why do you keep coming back? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like if, you know, and sometimes it's not a good fit. I mean, that's the honest truth. Sometimes it's just not yeah, a oh, good yeah. fit. And the sooner you well, can... And, and to know when to, yeah, know, knowing when to terminate that is yeah, critical as well. Yeah. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten was from one of my dearest friends, and he always says, fail fast. And I just think, yeah, man, like sometimes you just have to know that it's not a good fit. However, 
I think in this situation that you're talking about and, and what I'm talking about are those moments where if you can just be present for the resistance, theirs and yours, that, that really those kinds of clients, like they, you not, it's not only the common thread of, I get you, but it's like, I see you, like, I see you yeah, totally, and I hear you and I'm like, I'm on board. Like I'm, you know, you keep showing up. At, at, but I'm, I'm like, I'm going to keep showing up too. Right. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's just about that connection. I think that sweet connection, which again, does not necessarily mean let's go have cocktails or coffee. Uh, but within there's something about that teacher student, um, somebody on the Facebook forum, you know, articulated it. And if this is a thing, which is the therapeutic relationship, um, you know, where there is genuineness and appropriate empathy and, um, you know, all of these things. So it's just, uh, it's an interesting topic. I think, you know, all of us are confronted with it, but we're not really maybe talking about it all that much. Yeah. And, and listening to you, especially that, um, fail fast and, and the few words after that, what came to mind too is also being, um, as, as an instructor, being ready and willing and open to the fact that you're not just there to teach, you're there to be taught. Yeah. Right. And so often those clients who, you know, are the most difficult, therapeutically difficult, um, you know, are, are there to teach us, are there to either up, upgrade our craft mm-hmm. or on a deeper level, upgrade your life. Right. And I think the more you're you're ready to go, like, man, I I I know I was coming to work, but I didn't know I was going to school. Yeah. The more you can mm-hmm. become okay with that, uh, I think the better the relationships become. Yeah, and I also think too that that's based on um, what we just were touching on a bit ago, which is vulnerability. You know. Yeah. I think a lot of teachers have a hard time uh, showing up and being vulnerable. Um, because, you know, we are supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to be the director, the expert, the authority. Uh, and I yeah. think you can still, you can still be the expert. You could be an authority, you know, but, but you also have to be open to, uh, you know, being vulnerable. And, and I think that also speaks to what you said about how you're an open book. Like it's, you know, being transparent, yeah. being vulnerable, um, it's, it's well, and that's one of the things I've heard from, from clients, especially my spinal cord injury clients, is especially when I was first starting with spinal cord injury clients, you know, and they would, you know, they'd come in, well, what are we going to do? What can you do for me? And literally I would say, I have no idea, mm-hmm. but I know we can do something. Yeah. I know there is something that we can do here. You're, we're not going to waste your time. Right. You know, like what, what that's going to turn out to be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and clients found that really refreshing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't a false promise or it wasn't even a, um, uh, I know what I'm doing and you're going to listen to me moment. Yeah. It was that cooperative spirit of, and, and, and that's how I truly meant it. Of It wasn't that I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. It was a, I know what I'm doing. I don't know how this is going to integrate with what I'm seeing. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's work together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, clients find that really refreshing. You don't have to know everything. It doesn't have to go. It's not a one-way channel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this makes me just think about, you know, some of my observations originally watching you teach and um, brings me back to something I said early on in our conversation about how, how I was really deeply struck by your interaction um, with Lane when I watched you teach the first time, something that I called fearless compassion, just this ability to really be... Um, a hundred percent open to whatever happened, um, but never uh-huh. apologetic. Um, you know, never, never like um, afraid to afraid to keep going, to keep exploring, but also never afraid to change course. Um, one of the other things which just makes me—I mean, I could just remember kind of giggling as I was watching you, like. You know, you would try something, uh, and you would ask for a, like, you know, do the do the check in, get into some dialogue, and and he would be like, uh, no, not no, mm-mm. like not 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 getting it. <laughs> no, not, don't feel that. Yeah, no. Don't no get that. And I think too, uh, the dynamics of the two of you. I mean, you know, Lane Lane is pretty cool. He's a pretty cool guy. I mean, pretty pretty willing and funny and and open to just like what's happening. Um, but I just thought I was really impressed by that dynamic of like, it's okay when no is the answer, right? It's okay when it's not working, right? That you were really able to just be in it and stay in it and just like, okay, well, no is the answer. Awesome. Okay. So fantastic. It's a no. That's like, that's, that's, that's a tremendous amount of information, right? So let's try something else. Um, and my, one of my original questions to you was just, are you aware of that? Um, you know, that, that skill, that talent that you bring to the table in terms of being just kind of fearlessly present, um, with whatever is happening, um, and not being afraid of that of getting the no uh, response from the client. Yeah. Um, you, you know, until, honestly, I think until you had brought it up, you know, a number <laughs> of months ago, I don't know that, I don't know that I could have said that about myself. Mm-hmm. I think I probably knew that deep somewhere, mm-hmm. but I couldn't, I couldn't have said that. Um, and, and I think all of that comes from mostly uh, well, from a number of things, um, but I think the dialoguing and, and my comfort level with that comes from my college education. You know, having uh, a degree in linguistics and communication, and kind of understanding the, the channels of communication, um, and understanding that my experience with the exercise or my experience with the dialogue, my experience of the moment, is not his experience, mm-hmm. and so it's unimportant if I am clear to myself. It's much more important if um, the moment, if if what he's doing is clear to himself. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I I just sort of take it as, um, okay, well, that that channel of communication, whether it's um, visual communication or oral communication or kinesthetic communication, that channel of communication with what we're doing is not currently open. Mm -hmm. So we've just got to find another way to do it. 
And that's not a problem. It's not that what we're doing is necessarily bad or not appropriate. It just means that maybe the channel isn't quite open. So we'll try another way and we'll try another way. And then after trying a few ways, I, you know, it, it becomes really apparent to me that, and, and a quote I, a quote I use often in the studio is, that's just above your pay grade right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a level or two too much. Yeah. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we're not moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It just means neurologically, and, you know, this is with all sorts of clients. It just means neurologically that you are not ready for this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's fine. That gives me a ton of information about, oh, we need these foundational skills before we can do this. Or, mm-hmm. oh, we need uh, movement patterns to the right before we can do this. Or, oh, we just need to break through this before we can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also gives me information of, okay, when things get complex, um, this person stops listening. They start watching. Right. Um, or any number of things. So I, it's it's a data collection tool for me. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think, an awareness tool for everyone in the room of like, oh, okay, this is, um, we're actually at skill level this rather than skill level that. Mm-hmm. So it's never a, um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not generally speak, uh, speaking stumped by any of that. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just sort of like, well, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, where where we go with, where, where do we go now and what does this mean and how do we progress here? And I also think, like, not that I don't have a plan. I don't use, I don't generally speaking have an agenda mm-hmm. when a client comes in. It's not like, oh, I'm going to get you to do this. It's more like, okay, this is sort of what I'm going to expose you to today. And it will be really interesting to see where your body goes with this and sort of then moving in whatever direction, strengthening the skills in whatever direction it is that has shown up today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, it, my goal is never to get someone to do a teaser. Right. It's just sort of like teaser to me is a shape. Right, and there's right. a certain amount of muscles and skills that are required to make that shape. So... Ultimately, you know, it's a very finessed, refined movement skill to do mm-hmm. something like a teaser or a roll-up or a snake or a twist or whatever. But um, the foundational skills that are lying underneath that exercise are much more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, I, and I think because because that is my perspective that I'm never like, oh, crap, I really wanted a teaser there. Yeah. How do we not get a <laughs> teaser there? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of yes. like, well, we were moving in the direction of a teaser or whatever the movement is, mm-hmm. but man, we just sort of took a huge right turn and look at, look at this big open field we're now into play in. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, the no response, the, uh, the, I don't feel that response is never, in my brain, never a bad thing. It's just sort of a, um, it's just almost a good thing. It's like, oh, good. Now we've got all this other stuff that we can sort of teach your body. Yeah. Well, that was my experience of you watching you the first time. Uh, and what I wrote to you later, I think that day was, it's not only that you seem comfortable with the no, that you are almost hoping for it. <laughs> like <Yeah>. almost <laughs> looking for it. Like, yeah. uh, like it's, you're, if it's a yes, it's fine. You're re- you can move on. You can, you know, you can continue, you can progress, uh, and it can, it can get even more interesting. But, but the no is like, like you said, like a, 
now we find ourselves in an open field of, of opportunity. Something you said in the workshop, um, which, you know, only now I'm kind of making the connection of, um, that you don't, like you are not attached and, or you don't celebrate necessarily your students' successes and failures. And, um, to me, I think that is both, um, a product of and a catalyst of this idea of it could go any way and I'm not attached to achieving the shape or a shape, but, but I want to investigate and I, uh, you know, it's like, okay, great. You did it. Awesome. Like let's, okay. What's, you know, what's next? Where does that lead us? Or no, no, that didn't work. No, you didn't, you know, have that experience. Um, can you speak to that? Like, what is that all about yeah, for you? Yeah, yeah, So, um, the exact quote, and again, uh, I, I don't say this too frequently. Now that, now that it's on a podcast, I guess I say it frequently. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I don't, um, I don't participate in my clients' failures. So if they come back after the session and say, wow, that really hurt my back, or I this, or I that, in my head, I'll never say it to them, but in my head, I'm like, I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I also don't um, participate or attach myself to their successes. So when they finally get the roll up or when they finally feel their left leg again, or when they have stopped experiencing whatever, I didn't do that. Right. That wasn't me. And so, you know, because I don't participate in one, I, I don't participate in the other. I'm just sort of there um, guiding mm-hmm. and suggesting, you know, that these are options. And then, you know, it's sort of um, uh, how, do you, how do I successfully or more or less successfully guide them along in a more beneficial journey? Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of um, I... I I lead a lot of horses to water mm-hmm. and hopefully they drink. Yeah. And so with, with concern to that invitation of the no thing, especially on the, um, on, on the session you watched with Lane, uh, Lane has always been, Lane is a atypical quadriplegic. There is a lot of power in his movement. You know, he can, um, you know, when he extends his legs, he extends with force. Mm-hmm. When he uh, extends his spine or flexes his spine, you know, it's it's with force. Mm-hmm. Unlike a lot of quadriplegics where there is sort of an airy, floaty quality to their movement, uh-huh. almost as if the movement is being assisted through, through space, mm-hmm. Lane is like very, very, very atypical. You know, there's lots of power there. And so what what Lane tends to miss is the relationship to gravity, the nuances of movement, mm. the um, the excess tension within that movement. So uh, my invitation, you know, when I dialogue with with Lane, I'm almost trying to get. Uh, um, I'm hoping that there is a self realization on his part or in a lot of clients' part that there's a very big missing piece here. And if they realize that, it's very, very different than me saying, you missed that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you did this wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where if they sort of realize that, they're like, oh, there's more I could be doing mm-hmm. here, which is a very different message than you're doing this wrong. 
it's like, oh, okay, there's actually more work. There's, there are deeper levels to exercise A through Z. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I sort of see myself as a guide, as um, a, a movement mentor, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. More, than, uh, more than a teacher. You know, it's sort of like, well, here are some options and what can you and how can I help you Mm self-discover as as you progress? Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, once you're so I'll even in classes sometimes sort of say, um, you know, choose a different way to do that. Okay, choose a different way to do that. Okay, choose a different way to do that. Okay, choose a different way. And, you know, sometimes clients are like, well, I'm, I'm out of options. I'm like, no, you're not. If you were five. You'd have like 500 more options, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but just mm-hmm. keep exploring, yeah. you know, just keep playing. There's no right. There's right. no right in movement. Uh, All of those are options. Yeah. It was so interesting because I think, again, it is a challenge within the Pilates method itself because um, it has been promoted and, and perceived um, by a, a lot of us as like, there is a right way and a wrong way, right? Or is yeah. like, there is, yeah. there is the full expression of this work and then there is everything else, which is less than. So, you yeah. know, I think it's easy if we're teaching the method, um, to be attached to the outcome, whatever our particular outcome is. And then we do get, we get kind of pigeonholed into this tendency of, um, instructing, rather than educating or, uh, as you are talking about, like being a guide, you know, promoting self-exploration, um, it's very, very different. And it, it also plays into, you know, something that uh, we talked about before, which is this idea of student-centered teaching, which is not about telling, it's about asking, uh, and you do yeah. that, you know, in the way you just described, like, how could you do that differently? Which is something I find myself saying all the time, like, do something different with your shoulders here. It's like, don't, it's yeah. not, it's not release, relax your shoulders, shoulder blades down. It's like that just, that just, that shit does not work. I mean, let's be honest, no. <laughs> it just does not work. It does not work, you know, and you have clients, I don't know how many times I've had this experience over the years, you know, a client will come and say, oh, I heard you. I hear you in my head when I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And for a moment you go, Oh, that's so cool. And then you give it a second thought and you go, damn it. Totally missing uh-huh. the point. Like, exactly. like we're all just missing <laughs> the point here because that's never going to be fully integrated, right? It's always going to be right. That keeps the student held hostage to that, uh, that third level of, of, um, of learning, which is uh, conscious, competence, you know, where you're yeah. always just yeah, yeah. thinking about what, what you're doing as being right or wrong effect, you know, whatever it might be, but never unconsciously competent, which is not my voice in your head, but your just brain, you know, your yeah. brain actually being able to do it. So this idea of student centered teaching of asking and asking and asking and, and, you know, guiding, but putting the responsibility back on the client or the student, you know, to, See what else is there for you. See what else is there for you. What is this, you know, what could this potentially yeah. look like? The, the freedom to explore. You know, it's just the freedom to sort of go, okay, this is, you know, and, and there's nothing, um, you know, like I, but when I study Pilates, like when I go and who I choose to spend my money on and study with 
are all classical instructors, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more or less. Um, because I think foundationally, um, that is the that is the base layer of my teaching. Yeah. So it is important to me to study, you know, a very strong foundation within Pilates. Absolutely. You know, it's sort of like when you look at dance. Like Russian ballet is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's technically difficult. The job is to make it look easy. You know, it's 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 pristine. But that doesn't take anything away from lyrical or contemporary dance or modern dance or any of the, you know, off-branches jazz or anything. You know, they're just different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, none of them are better or worse, but every single one has a strong foundation in lines. Yes. You know, like you better have a good foundation in your technique if you're going to roll around on the floor. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just rolling around on the floor. Right. Like, there's no... You're not going anywhere with that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, I think I think if you're going to teach Pilates, to have a foundation of like, okay, this is what the, this is what Joseph Pilates, this is the shape Joseph Pilates was looking at. And this is sort of why he was doing that. Or this was, um, who even knows why? I don't even know. You know, everyone says, oh, it's this, this, and this. I mean, I don't, to my knowledge, there was no... Um, mentorship program. He's like, well, I was doing this for this and yeah. this for that. It's just sort of do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can all sort of extrude, oh, well, this shape probably was for this right. mm -hmm. and this is for that. But those are sort of like, um, that's very refined movement. Mm -hmm. It's very upper echelon movement. You know, and for a lot of us, you know, we're just deconditioned because of our shoes and because of yeah. our chairs and because of our sugar, and because of our lifestyle and the TVs and the stress and the whatever it is that oftentimes, you know, that there are foundational skills that need to be um, explored, met, saturated mm -hmm. before you can go and do, you know, these beautiful hierarchical movements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think they're, I mean, it's like, it's not, one is not, uh, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Exploring mm -hmm. uh, the classical work, the, the strong framework of the work as it was originally intended. And I, uh, I gravitate like you do. I mean, that was my original training was, um, you know, through the Romana lineage. And then I quickly went mm -hmm. in, into like rebel mode, you know, went as far away from that <laughs> as possible, you know, but, but as I mature as a teacher now, you know, almost 20 years of, you know, later of exploring the work, it's, it's all I want is that because I think, you know, conversation I'm frequently having with people about like the difference between contemporary or classical or the value of the orders or the value of that original intent and framework is that there is such a rich opportunity within that to go deep yeah. right? and to explore. Yeah, totally. And what we're doing in the beginning, uh, in using the tools that we're talking about, you know, asking questions and guiding towards self, self discovery and is like what, you know, it's like the, the repetition of that experience, the, you know, peeling the layers away in a way is what gives us the opportunity at the more advanced stages to, to really make it just as 
joyful and delightful and, and, you know, powerful as it can possibly be. Right. So there's this really, um, sweet interweaving, um, of, you know, what we're talking about at the, at a foundational level and, and how that is absolutely, but, you know, potentially present in the, you know, in, in the work itself as it, you know, can be fully expressed. Beautiful. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So <laughs> it's so cool. Um, well, you know, I think, I think that's, you know, just some of the stuff that has been rolling around in my head, um, you know, from watching you teach and working with you and it's, uh, it was really cool. The workshop that we, um, we, you know, co-taught together, uh, we did a manual cueing, uh, section and, you know, lots of, we were doing hands-on stuff and to have watched you work with Lane and, you know, we're getting into all of this really deep, uh, you know, subtle stuff. And we're talking, you know, about, well, you know, many of the things we've been talking about today. And then, and then we're going through, um, what were we teaching? We were exploring upstretch. Uh, so it's, uh, I think indicative also of just what we were just saying, which is, you know, I did, I showed a couple of things and then you came over and you just, you just got in there and it was like, you know, again, that unapologetic, like, how about, how about this? Very clear, very strong. (laughs) It's just such a nice dynamic. And I think, again, it is really reflective of what makes you such a, um, exceptional, exceptional teacher is, is being able to, you know, hold space for, for so much kindness and compassion and, and uh, the obvious desire to relate and connect to your student and also be so clear and intentional about the work that you're presenting. It never feels fluffy, right. Or amorphous or, you know, Oh, thank you. yeah. So, well, thank you for spending the time again with me to do the podcast. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to very, very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Chantel. Thank you for the podcast and and all of the mentorshiping stuff that you're doing in the community. Like you're really making a big difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, it's my absolute pleasure. It's really nice to, um, like you said at the beginning of the conversation, when you find yourself in a situation to um, make work out of what you love and what you are naturally. Like there's just there's just nothing better. So, um, it's a, it's a real honor and I look forward to, um, maybe seeing you soon and working with you and, um, everybody should check out, uh, James Crater, Google him, look at the website evolved. Uh, give me the website, James evolved body Pilates.com. No, evolved body studio.com. It's going through a huge makeover right now. So if it doesn't show up, check back. I'm in the midst of, I got a lot of projects going. So you can find me there. And you can also go on Instagram at Project Move You. It's Project underscore Move underscore just the letter U. It's a new thing I'm working on, Movement University. So there'll be more coming out about that as well. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, And James just uh, published another article with Pilates Intel um, which was really fantastic. So, um, you should check that out. Um, yeah. And just stay tuned to this guy because he's something special. 
So thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, feel free to reach out to us with your comments and questions, and um, we'll see you next time around.